Welcome to Que Pasa HSIs, a podcast dedicated to everything Hispanic serving institutions. I'm your host, Dr. Gina Ann Garcia, bringing you the news on what's happening in HSIs. Join us as we explore the history and evolution of HSIs, culturally relevant and liberatory practices, current and emerging research with HSIs, and the policies that shape servingness. Saludos, HSI familia, and welcome to episode four of season two of Que Pasa, HSIs. This episode is scheduled to drop in the same week as my new book, Transforming Hispanic Servant Institutions for Equity and Justice, published by Johns Hopkins University Press. If you haven't already done so, go ahead and pause the episode, open your browser, and purchase the book for you and one of your HSI besties. I encourage you to order the book directly from Johns Hopkins University Press site, but it's also available via Amazon. In the book, I talk about the role of external influences or those governments, professional associations, policy intermediaries, and organizations that are not internal to the college or university, yet they have the power to help or hinder servingness. This episode features one of those powerful forces. In this episode, I talked to the dynamic duo from Escala Educational Services, Dr. Melissa Salazar and Dr. Maribel Jimenez. As I invite guests to the show, I'm careful to select people who can offer various perspectives on becoming an HSI and serving this, and these two guests deliver. Escala, founded and led by Dr. Salazar, is a consortium of higher education consultants who are committed to closing equity gaps for Latinx students in HSIs. They work exclusively with HSI educators, offering a series of services, including the Certificate in College Teaching and Learning in HSIs. The Escala team of facilitators are currently working in HSIs as professors, administrators, advisors, and coaches, and they do their work through a Latinx-centered approach. In this episode, our guests talk about the role that Escala plays in supporting HSI faculty and practitioners. Dr. Melissa Salazar has a degree in chemistry from UC Berkeley, food sciences from UC Davis, and education from UC Davis. She began her career in education as a STEM museum educator in the San Francisco Bay Area, then followed her interest in culture and science to research school food acculturation in Mexican and Southeast Asian middle school students. After completing her PhD, she began a new career in professional development in both K-12 and higher education and coached high school classroom teachers in northern New Mexico, as well as taught 15 different math, science, and education courses at four-year and two-year HSIs in both California and northern New Mexico. In 2008, she founded Escala, which is based in Melissa's hometown of Española, New Mexico. Dr. Maribel Jimenez serves as the Dean of Academic Transfer Pathways and Partnerships at Highline College in Seattle, Washington, an emerging HSI. She is a Doctor of Education, EDD, from North Central University, a Master of Social Work from Eastern Washington University, a Bachelor of Arts in Criminal Justice from Eastern Washington University, and an Associates of Arts from Yakima Valley College. Dr. Jimenez serves as the lead facilitator and curriculum designer for Escala Educational Services. Her areas of expertise include strategic planning at HSIs, professional development for faculty and staff, institutional capacity building, data-informed decision-making, and creative problem-solving, all through an equity lens. 
You may remember her from episode 10 of season one of Get Bossa HSIs, where she dropped so many gems on us about strategic planning and HSIs. This episode was a fun one to record, and I loved spending time with my friends and learning more about the wonderful work of Escala. I hope you all enjoy the show. Okay, let's go ahead and get started with today's episode of Que Pasa HSIs, where we talk about everything HSIs. We have two guests today from Escala Educational Services, Dr. Salazar and Dr. Jimenez. Thank you all for being a guest here today on Que Pasa HSIs. So as the uh, intro question, the little entryway into, into um, our conversation today, I'd like our listeners to just know a little bit about you. Who are you and what brings you to education? Thank you, Dr. Garcia, and thanks for offering Escala an opportunity to share our various stories. So for me, um, I am a Latina, and my, my big part of my identity comes from New Mexico. So my family has lived here 400 years. I'm one of those folks in the small pocket of the Southwest where we were here predating um, the United States. And there's just a lot of identity um, construction around the part of New Mexico where I'm from. So that's my father's side. My mother's side is actually German Irish from Ohio. And to make it all more complicated, I was born and raised in New Jersey. So <laughs> there's a lot going on for me, but it made me um, very interested in identity as an adult because my parents basically flattened all of our identities into we're just American. We're just, we're just from America and like doing all that kind of work with us as kids. So I entered college pretty much unknown with what I was. And when people asked me that I had, I tripped up a lot with like, what do you mean? Do you mean like where I was born? You know, so I spent a lot of time learning what it meant to be Latina from Northern New Mexico, which is where I pretty much put place a lot of my identity because I don't have a lot of connection to my mom's family. Um, but that all that happened at UC Berkeley, which was a great place for me to have landed um, to do all that identity work. So I got a STEM degree at UC Berkeley, barely. And I think that has fed a lot of the interest that I have now, which is unpacking why students like me need to also explore their identity while they're getting degrees and why that's so important to not separate yourself from your studies, because in the STEM fields at Berkeley, it was very much like faceless education. Like you are just, you're not human, right? Like you're just a machine going to class and turning in your problem set. So I really hated that atmosphere. And I think that really drives me now in Escala to make sure that we are following, you know, the framework that you have and really seeing students as whole people. Because I think no matter what your degree is, engineering or chemistry or math or whatever were people within those degrees. So I think my identity formation has come to this now um, in my work as a scholar. Thank you, Dr. Salasad. And um, so I will share. Um, thank you, Dr. Garcia, for um, inviting us. And so for me, um, this is Maribel, and I um, came to education, um, I think as as long as I can remember, I feel like I have always felt this, um, you know, or have experienced and seen uh, what it's like to be like, a, you know, the students all look like me, but the teachers don't. And I never could articulate, I remember even in like elementary school, I, I, I have never, I was like a, like a, 
junior in in college the first time I had uh, an instructor that looked like me so but I but I remember knowing that that or noticing right that that that's interesting that nobody looks like me and so um so I, I feel like my journey into higher ed has been um, layered and nuanced and complicated but but basically you know uh, my my family and I um, migrated to Washington. I uh, my family, my parents still live in the Yakima Valley, and um, and they moved from California to to do to follow the 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 field work that's in in Washington. And so, um, I th- I think that um, there's a po- there's a huge part of Central Washington that maybe a lot of people don't know is that there's a lot of Mexicanos there um, and specifically from Michoacan, specifically from like um, Guerrero, those parts of like Mexico. And so um, so that's where we went. And then growing up, all of the students uh, looked like me. It was very rural. And uh, most of the court classes had, you know, very small number of students. And like my graduating senior class was 55. And, um, but they all looked like me, right? And um, so then when I went into um, higher ed, uh, the reason why I chose to, I have a bachelor's degree in criminal justice, but the only reason I chose that field was because the department chair at the time was a Mexicana that looked like me. And that was the first time I saw someone that looked like me in higher ed. And so that's the path that I took, but I quickly realized that that what I was hearing in the classes and in the program was, was, uh, was very much rubbing up against my values. And I knew that that wasn't where I wanted to be. And so I quickly um, understood that I needed to do something different, which is uh, why I went into counseling. And so um, after um, outside of um, being in criminal justice classes, you know, in courses, Outside of the classroom, I was heavily involved with Mecha at the time at Eastern Washington University, and our mission was really to go to high schools in the Yakima Valley to talk about our stories or like how we came to to, to college. We thought promoting higher ed was our mission at the time, and so what happened was that the my last year, my senior year, um, a, a a new freshman student told me, Maribel, I came to Eastern because of you and because of what you told me. And it was like in that moment that I felt like this is what I want to do. I want to be able to to like share my story to really help other students understand, especially first generation college students who I was a first generation college student who didn't know and we had to find our own way. And so um, so that's when like everything kind of shifted um, my direction, shifted to counseling and then eventually led me back to um, Yakima Valley College, which is uh, my uh, where I was a, a faculty counselor for about nine years before I transitioned to my new position. And it was there that I got connected with Dr. Salazar and Escala when we were doing um, professional development for faculty to serve our student body, which is 70 percent, you know, um, Latinx uh, 80% first generation, 80% Pell eligible. So that is kind of like full circle how I, um, I'm connected also with, um, Estella. 
Thank you. Thank you both for that and for starting so deeply into identity, right? The identity mm-hmm. work is so important. It comes up in all, every conversation that we've been having on Que Pasa HSIs and it, it comes up in your work with the Scala. It comes up in my work and research with HSIs. So it is important, right, for us to start with who are you and where do you come from and, and how do we value that? <laughs> That's the important thing, right? That identity often isn't valued. And, and Melissa, you referred to that, right? Like it's not valued in STEM for sure. So I'm excited to hear more about that and you know, how y'all are trying to disrupt the culture of STEM because I, I know you are. Um, but let's talk about your entryway into HSIs then, right? Like how did you start thinking about HSIs or how did they come into your consciousness? Again, my you know, connected to identity, my work is about HSI identity, yet most HSIs don't have a strong identity, right? So how did you how did you even come to know your consciousness around um, HSIs? Okay, well, I'll start that. And I know uh, Dr. Jimenez has stories as well, but I'll just start by saying that um, I'm jealous of people that got to study HSIs for their dissertation. <laughs> I I don't think don't hate have, don't hate yeah, on us. I'm so jealous, and <laughs> I mean, it, in like a good way. But I think you know, again, if you can turn back time and or you just wish you were in a different place, I would have loved to have studied HSIs when I was in the mix of doing research. But um, while I was doing my dissertation, I was actually in a completely different field than HSIs. So I always like to say that I kind of fell into this work from a very different place. So. I mentioned earlier, I went to UC Berkeley. I have a degree in chemistry and chemical engineering from bachelor's degree. So it's pretty far cry from studying HSIs, which is my research field now, but uh, I have master's degrees and my PhD from UC Davis. And again, those were in uh, food science. And then my PhD, I finally came into understanding that I was an educator and why was I doing all this STEM degrees? And I don't, I don't regret the STEM work, because I think, like you said, it's informing my, like having first-hand experience of getting STEM degrees. I can, I really understand the people that are teaching in those spaces. I'm understanding the students' experiences. And I so I, I think that's all meant to be, right? But when I fell into the HSI work, I realized this is like where my heart is. And I had never heard of an HSI before 2010. So I'd already finished my dissertation. I was already doing professional development for STEM. I was working in Northern New Mexico. I was actually teaching at night at Northern New Mexico College, which is a 92% Latinx students, 100% first gen, 100% Pell. I mean, like one of the best places for me to really be a professor, to understand HSIs because it really was like, who's, there was no question about whose culture needed to be centered when all of our students were all, we were all together, right? And it was also a great place to work because um, at that time when I was there, over 50% of the professors were also Latinx. And that's very unusual. Um, So I think there were just a lot of discussions at staff meetings amongst colleagues about what were we doing because we were still teaching in a very white centric way. Just because we were all brown didn't mean that all of a sudden everything fell into place. So I, you know, this is going to be a lot about my dad today, but um, I just want to mention that my dad was the first person. Um, He was an HSI program evaluator for NSF and for the very early NSF HSI grants and for Title V and III. So he would tell me occasionally about this HSI world and he dragged me to a conference called LC in 2011. 
And when I got there, I was like, oh my God, this is like, this, where, where have you been, right? Which is what a lot of people think when they first go to OC is like, here are all the people. Here are all the people that I wanna be talking to. Um, so I presented some of my early work there and Ascala was still not even a dream of mine yet, but I really started to get hooked into the idea that we, when we serve Latinx students, when we are Latinx people, which is a predominant um, force at OSSE, we have similar concerns, issues, learnings, discussions, and it was just really exciting. So that was, that was how, that was my entryway into HSIs. And ever since then, I've just sort of been devouring everything I can because I don't have the dissertation stuff. I didn't get all those five years of being able to read it all. So now I'm catching up, you know, and I've spent the last nine years really doing that. I didn't know the story about your dad bringing you in. That's so cool. I hope my kids tell that story one day. They're like, well, my mom, you know, she wrote this book. <laughs> awesome. Maribel, what about you? Yeah, so thank you. Um, I um, came to it uh, more, not as far back as um, Dr. Salazar, but I, um, when I started working at Yakima Valley College in 2014, uh it wasn't until 2016 that I uh, was invited to to come to, to this conference called ASI, you know, that, and I feel like that's where, it, where I first became aware of, like, th that there was even scholarship around, you know, what it meant to serve specifically Latinx students. And, and in the two years prior to that, when I was working at YVC, I felt like there, like, all like it felt like does anybody else see what's happening here like it was really frustrating and really um really uh just like constantly trying and exhausting trying to figure out like why isn't anyone sounding the alarm here that we're not graduating students that they're that we're like you know um tracking students to certain degrees that were like there was all of these things that were happening and and it didn't seem like the, like it was an urgency right and it and it and at that time i still you know hadn't heard of servingness and didn't even know that um the college was an hsi because that's not something that was public or something that people talked about and so when i uh but the one thing about that the college was that um, it had been an HSI since 2001, and ever since then, it's never not had an HSI grant. And so there was a lot of funding, um, you know, and resources coming. But what I found was that, um, you know, I was I, I was being pulled in slowly but surely to the work about trying to figure out like how do we use this the funding to really make sure that we're serving our Latinx students and. Um, and it was different because um, not only was I also somebody that identified as Latinx, but also I was from the Valley. Like I'm from, like I, I was that student that they're trying to serve. I was there. I was, I, I went to college there, you know, and, and I felt like because I knew my community and my, you know, my, all of my family still lives there and are still, you know, my small primos and nephews and they're all still go to YVC too right and so um so anyway I started slowly becoming involved and that's when um I was invited to go to YVC and it wasn't until 
I went to Las, the Las Vegas one was my first one. And I went to the decolonizing workshop that you had, Gina. And I, at the time, I didn't know who you were or that you, you know, were Gina Garcia. Right. And I was just like, okay, this sounds like really cool because it sounds, I had been learning about like um, decolonizing and, and, and dismantling and things like that. And I felt like that's what needed to happen. So I went to your workshop and then you presented on this, like what it could be, right. Like how it should be, what it could be. And that, and then it, it gave me permission to, to begin to think of like, what can it be instead of trying to make it fit with what we already have and have this like structure or the way we do things, our processes that are definitely not designed to really serve our Latinx students. And, but we're like looking for the loopholes and where can we go here? And okay, this is the rule, but it didn't say this. So let's do, let's use it to help this student. Right. And, and I know what listeners are going to be thinking like, yeah, that's what we have to do because the system is not built to serve our Latinx students. And so it gave me the uh, like permission to begin to look, to think like this could be different and, and how can we do that? And so that's when I started, it was, in, in, it was since then, then I was like, who is this lady? She's talking my language. <laughs> and then I was like, Oh, it's Gina, <laughs> you know, and then began to like read all of the scholarship and, and all of the ways in which there were other colleges who were grappling with the same questions and the same things. And, and then like, like I, it was me who had that reaction that I see like, wow, look at all of these people who have the same questions as I do and are trying to come up with solutions to really serve our Latinx students. Did I have cool shoes on? Um, obviously. I always have cool shoes on. So <laughs> yeah. you had to say, who's this lady with cool shoes? <laughs> I know, with the red bottoms. <laughs> Uh, that's always a part of the, the, like, she's saying cool things and she has cool shoes, you know, it's, it's part of my like MO. <laughs> well, that's cool. So I'm glad y'all have bring us in because that's, I mean, I came, I, you know, I, I met Dr. Salazar um, in New Mexico randomly when I was at a writing retreat um, and she pulled me in, right. And, and has been very engaged in us and very, a huge fan of Escala ever since, right. Ever since I found out um, that the work that was being done. So Escala Educational Services uh, was founded in 2008 by Dr. Salazar and has grown into a professional learning experience designed specifically for faculty at HSIs. And I always tell people it's the only uh, professional development program specifically for faculty at HSIs, right? It's, it's a very specific niche and a very specific focus, which I which I just love. Um, but I don't really know the origin story of Escala, so I, I would love to hear, and I'm sure the uh, listeners want to hear, what's the, what's the origin story? How did it get started and, and why the focus on faculty and HSIs. Okay, it's every are, are your listeners leaning back? Does everybody have their drink? <laughs> Doo-doo-doo. Cue the Western music, you know, dusty day in New Mexico. So uh, again, it's uh, I have to bring it back to my family and and I love that you pointed out the dad the dad-daughter story, because that really is it. That's the origin story. And I guess I'd never really thought about the multi-generational HSI work, but yes, let's get our kids into this work. Let's like inspire the next generation. That's totally it. Um, But like I said, my dad had introduced me into HSI work because he was an evaluator and he was pretty in the mix with Aussie before I got there, but 
really, if I back up, what was what how it all came together was that he was a new professor at University of New Mexico after being in industry for many years. My dad's also a STEM guy. So we're kind of like a STEM family. And he made fun of me for going into education when I turned my PhD into an education degree instead of a STEM degree. And, you know, because that's what STEM people do sometimes. It's just like, you know, hey, what are you doing going over to the soft side? And I was like, no, this is me. It's what I'm going to do. And, you know, he teased me for years, you know, blah, blah, blah. Why'd you do that? But then lo and behold, when he became a professor after leaving industry in the later part of his life and going, oh, I'm just going to teach engineering. It'll be, a, you know, be super easy because teaching so easy. And guess what? I was getting these like 9 p.m. phone calls when he was grading going, oh, my God, all my students are not doing well. And everybody failed the last quiz. And he had all these questions. And I was like, oh, look who's like talking now about, you know, who needs the education degree. So I was like coaching him. I realized, you know, looking back on it, I was just like coaching him all the time. We would have these really interesting chats about Hispanic students at UNM and Latinx students like him, because he went to UNM himself um, in the early 1960s as one of the only Hispanic students in their graduating class in engineering. And he was extremely isolated and alone and invalidated himself. So he was like, he just had all these issues coming up for himself emotionally around teaching. He's like, oh my God, nothing's changed. Nothing has changed here. And I don't mean to shame UNM, but we have HSIs that have been HSIs for a very long time. And like Dr. Jimenez says, they're not sounding the alarm. It, nothing has changed in 50 years, right? Why are we teaching the same way? And I kept telling my dad that, why are you using the methods that didn't work with you? So you got through, you know, and we have all these stories of exceptionalism that we just got deep into it. Like, why did you succeed? Why didn't any of your friends get into the degree? Why are you the only one from Española Valley High School that ended up getting that engineering degree? Like, what was it, you know? And so he had to unpack a lot of his own identity work. You can tell that I just love that stuff because I think it's all wrapped up. When you're a professor, when you're teaching, your own emotions, your own identity, your past education, traumatic or success, whatever you had impacts a lot of why you think something will work. And so we had to really do a deep dive into who he was and why he was teaching the way he did. And I just like fell in love with that process. And that's really where I came into the idea, let's take this on the road. So we actually did a series of workshops together, him and I, going out and talking about our own identities as people, how we were both professors. We both worked in HSIs, very different experiences as people. I'm a second generation college student. I'm not first gen like my dad. And both my parents had college degrees and I still had very big struggles. So it was about, it's not just you're gonna be okay when your kids have the parents with college degrees. There's still lots of things that happen with identity in college. So. That's where the idea for let's provide spaces, like formal spaces and coaching and discussions of identity and talking about yourself for the very first time and not seeing this as a job, but you're working with people, but you're a person. So where do we put all this? And it turned out that professors really wanted to have that conversation. So I, I just went out there and like pitched it to a college that was nearby me, University of New Mexico Taos. And thank God I had some friends there who like 
said, oh, okay, we'll take a chance on this, you know, and I like said, will you pay us? <laughs> so I took a friend of mine, Dr. Kathy Berryhill with me. She was a dean at the College of Northern New Mexico College. And we, you know, really kind of put something together that we thought was just discussion-based, like go out and think about the way you assess and then come back and let's have a discussion. Okay, go out and do a survey of your students and see how well you really know them or what assumptions you're making. And then let's come back and discuss. So we did a year long program that really was the pilot for the big course that we do now called the Certificate in College Teaching and Learning at UNM Taos way back. And they were just so gracious to like let us play with them because we were just like kind of going, well, how about this? Let's try this and see what worked. But I was surprised at how much it took off from then because I went back to USC and presented what we had done at Taos and it turned out lots of colleges wanted the same kind of programming. So for a couple of years, we really just bounced around from HSI to HSI doing pretty much what I had done at Taos, which was like a year long program, a cohort of professors having discussions around identity, culture and teaching and seeing how it could shape into something. So it was really one college at a time for three or four years, I was exhausted, <laughs> but it was really um, essential, I think, for me to have gone to that many HSIs and to have those really ground grounding conversations for me to see, is this just my opinion or do we all need to like do something different? And then what's that going to look like? So I learned a ton from that kind of road tour, you know, it's like the garage band that like goes to like the bars. That's what I felt like I was doing. <laughs> I was like learning a lot, changing every time, like the message, because I was like, nope, that wasn't appropriate for that college. So we traveled all over. We went to, um, I mean, at that time, I think I was just starting to get um, hooked up with Yakima Valley College where I met Dr. Jimenez and her colleagues, but I was mostly in California. It was a lot of California community colleges that hired us at that time and some private um, HSIs. So that's really the origin stories of like, you know, where we started and how we used that time to create what we feel like is working now really came all from listening, having a ton of listening conversations with real practitioners who were in the classrooms. And at that time, I did all the coaching with um, my colleagues. We, I actually watched everybody teach. So that's like the earliest, earliest of Scala folks. They actually had me visit their classroom. So you can just see how many plane flights that was. <laughs> but I would go visit and just watch everybody. And those hours really informed me on like, okay, I can see when someone is struggling and when students are not learning and I can really see when someone's succeeding and how do I help others get to that place um, is, is what I was doing during those years. Awesome. So you are an entrepreneur and a CEO and just an overall like badass mujer, right? Like doing the dang thing. Um, and you started out, I guess, as an end of one, right? A, a, an organization of one and you've grown to a much larger organization. So now how many folks you have working for you and then kind of lead us into how Maribel works with you at Escala. Oh yeah. We've like quadrupled our staff and so now there's four. So <laughs> <laughs> Oh, yeah, hey, that's good. <laughs> I think everybody thinks we're really big because I we thought you were. Lot. Well, I know. So what happened is, yeah, I was hustling a lot, going everywhere, which way, and um, but it was really a subcontractor 
business for a very long time where I had people come in because, you know, professors are busy and I was hiring other people who I knew knew the work, you know, they were teaching and so they're working full time. So I had to like get grab people for just certain jobs. So for a while, it was really just cobbling together the people that were willing to come with me at this work. Um, but now I am excited that about three or four years ago, we were able to be strong enough on our feet financially to get employees and to even hire myself as an employee because I was still, you know, just doing the shoestring stuff. So I feel like for the past four years, we've really been a business where we do run courses, we have a home office, you know, we pay our taxes on time, all that kind of stuff. So that's been, <laughs> that's been awesome. Um, and so Dr. Jimenez right now is still a subcontractor with us, but she is the major force behind our curriculum development for our staff and faculty programs. I think she's an amazing partner in this work and it's really difficult to design curriculum. So I haven't found a lot of people that are willing to really look at the finer points and debate at midnight about whether this activity or that activity comes first, you know, and we will do that endlessly just all night long. <laughs> so she's an amazing partner. And I've had lots of people that because of all the travel that I did and all of the HSIs that were willing to host me, I met a ton of people. And so it's really not just that I'm friendly. It's like people just come out, you know, for the work, you know, I would say, Hey, you know, I'm going to another HSI. You want to come with me? And people are like, Oh my gosh, yes. Because it turns out all of us are in this for personal reasons. We all want to, oh, <laughs> I don't say we want to overcommit. Let me, let me strike that. But we are all willing to do the extra because we are so concerned about what's going on with our students. We know that it matters. These are our family members. These are our people that look like us. And so it's like, I always just say, this is hard work. And so I try to pay people really, really well, because I feel like sometimes we will say like, I'll do that for free. And I'm like, hell no, you're not going to do this for free. I'm going to pay you with funds from HSI grants, because that's part of what these grants should be for, is really repairing the damage that we've had to be underpaid and underserved ourselves. So part of the whole, like, you know, being a badass entrepreneur, as you said, like, part of my pride of running a business is to turn that money around to people who know what they're doing and aren't getting the support they need from their institutions at times and aren't getting the money that they deserve. So I have no problem being the money person because it's funneling through me through HSI grants. Almost all of our people come because they are funded through an HSI grant. So I turn those rich fees into stipends for our many subcontractors. So at this point, yearly, we probably pay about 100 subcontractors to work for us and do various things. But we do have four core employees right now. Thank you for clarifying that. I think this is a really unique conversation because we haven't talked to somebody who, who has an organization, owns a business that 100% supports HSIs, right? And to hear your, your perspective on like supporting also the employees that are doing the work that are going out there and not using people, right? Like it seems so basic, like, yeah, don't use people, but people get used all the time, right? Like we're taking advantage of, or we're free labor, all that sort of stuff. So thank you for sharing that, right? For anyone that's listening, that's thinking about starting an entrepreneurial business for HSIs, 
this is what it is, right? This is really thinking you're going to work with and for people in the organizations for the organizations, right? And that's exactly, um, I think, what you you have modeled with Escala. So, so thank you for that. But let's get into some of the meat of like, what does Escala do? Because now everybody's like, y'all are amazing. What do you do? <laughs> Tell us more. So talk to us a little bit about some of the offerings you, you now have, courses, retreats, consulting support, that kind of stuff. Sure. And I'm going to have Dr. Jimenez help me with this because she's very familiar with our programs, but I'll just start off by talking about the one that brought us together, which is our big course, the one that grew out of all of the early work. And it's called the Certificate in College Teaching and Learning in HSIs. And it's a 27 hour course. Everyone who's been through it will laugh and say it's more like double those many hours, but Officially, it's a 27-hour course, and it runs from summer through the next spring. So it's almost a year long. And what we ask people to do in that course, and this is faculty, uh, there are staff that are encouraged to take this course as well, but mainly it's a course that's like its name. It's about teaching. It's about, and in fact, it shall, you know, the teaching and learning, they go hand in hand. I try to talk more about learning than teaching because that's the misnomer of what we're doing. We're actually learning alongside our students. We're helping them learn. We're not really teaching. So anyway, that's, that's what it is to me. It's a crash course in working with people and working with Latinx people. And I think that faculty, it came out of this idea that, you know, faculty, it's, they have not had any teaching training or learning training, right? So we, even as education PhDs, in my experience, even my own my own PhD program at Davis, I didn't feel like we were following our own principles when we were like going through our seminars and courses as PhD candidates. I was like, why why do we read about this but don't see this in practice? So, so I feel like even faculty, any faculty with any discipline, really had, doesn't have an opportunity in higher ed to dialogue about the finer points of teaching and what culture has to do with it. Because for me, it's like, we can, we don't teach in culture-free zones ever. And in HSIs, if you believe that, you really should leave. And I have no apologies about saying that anymore. I used to kind of dance around that, but I have seen enough um, folks who are just not doing service to our students by not exploring how their own culture is impacting how they act towards their students, assumptions they make, the things that they assess. And if you aren't assessing, if you're not looking at yourself and you're working in an HSI in a classroom, you're, you better believe that your students are probably suffering for that, that you're not being reflective about who you are. And I don't care if you're white or not. I think everybody needs to reflect about their identities because it's complicated. So whether or not we're Latinx, and, and we've had plenty of professors come through that program and tell us, you know what, I haven't been the professor I needed to be, even though I am Latinx, even from this community. And so it's for all of us, right, to put a reflective space together for people to do a structured reflection on the actions that they take and the practices they have, and then they change on their own. So I am not a big like checklisty person. I believe that all of our programs are about process. So that's really the big course. We've had about 700 faculty complete that course since its inception and about um, 40 or so HSIs that have participated in that course. So the reason that course is so foundational to us is because the length of time 
it's very unusual for a professional development program. And to get people to commit for that long means you get to know them really well and they get really invested in their process. So we have a big alumni community for that program that where I meet tons of people like Dr. Jimenez, she's an alumni of that program. So it's it's a powerful program and it's also provided us with our own network of people who really, really deeply understand the power of process and reflection. So that's our big program. Um, it's on hiatus this summer, so I could do fun stuff like this, <laughs> catch up and read and plan, but it will be back next summer, summer 2023. Um, with um, We'll be back in person with it and also have an online course, which is how we've been running it since COVID. Um, so that's our big course. And then I'll just briefly talk before turning it over to Dr. Jimenez about another course that's um, basically almost an offshoot of that course is for STEM faculty in particular. We developed a STEM mini course in culturally responsive teaching in HSIs. And that came about a couple years ago when I just had so many people asking us for a STEM focused course. And we had so many STEM faculty that had come through their certificate that said, you know, certificate was awesome, but I really still want to have a STEM focused conversation around the struggles that we have with you know, our colleagues talking about rigor, you know, all the things that happen in STEM that are particular to that, the fact that we're training people for credentialing programs like nursing, you know, like, how do we, how do we, like, how do we talk about our own concerns? So that's where this course came from. It's called the STEM mini course. Uh, we've had about a couple hundred faculty come through that now, a very popular course. It's also a little bit shorter. It's nine hours instead of 27. So it doesn't ask for that huge inquiry-based reflection and change, but we still feel like it's very impactful. People have to do a lot of reflections and submit exercises. And of course, it's all STEM-driven. The people who do that course, you probably know Dr. Paloma Vargas. She is um, a big powerhouse in that course and uh, leads that course facilitation team. So it's all STEM practitioners in HSIs who teach that course. So that's a really, that's been a really fun community to also build out because of the STEM, the STEM needs, and they really do want to talk to other STEM faculty. So um, Dr. Jimenez, would you talk about the Moving Towards Serving course? Yeah, so I think to, to um, continue what Dr. Salazar was saying, um, I, I want to go back to when she talked about that they, we do like deep listening. And I think part of the CTL course and working with all the, all the people is listening for what we were hearing that people needed. And I think um, when people ask about like, well, how do you know what to offer? And it's because we're hearing what people are asking for. And so um, early, about a year ago, um, Dr. Salazar and I were working together on um, trying to create something for teams. Because what we're finding and, and thinking through is that um, we, we would get a lot of people, maybe HSI directors who are like, well, I don't really know what to do. Like I have this grant and I don't know what to do with it. And, and, and you know, they're asking me to figure out like, how do I um, institutionalize what we're doing? Because that's always the goal, right? Is like the, you get the grant, you, you do the thing, and then you you work hard to really institutionalize whatever it is that you did, because hopefully the thought is that it's going to be, um, you know, addressing those equity gaps for Latinx students. And so, so what we did was we, we created a course 
that's for teams rather than individuals. What Dr. Salazar just described in the CTL program and the STEM mini is like individual faculty, you know, working with themselves and maybe their team, but it was, and, and so this course was, is created for teams of HSIs that are, we're doing HSI work. And so we piloted this course in January and uh, we had four uh, colleges come through um, and we really did some very uh, intense, intentional work with them around uh, interweaving not only themselves as a team to do this, the, the HSI work and moving it towards serving, but also to be able to um, weave it into the fabric of the college rather than it uh, unraveling after the, the grant ends. So, so as you're thinking about like, here's, here's the grant and here's what we're going to do. But then when the grant money ends, then it all kind of like, it kind of fell apart and, and no, the, the work doesn't continue. And so we were really focused on that. And, um, and we got a lot of really positive feedback about, um, uh, from the teams about like giving them not just language to use when they're in meetings, because we also talked a lot about uh, process and protocols and how what happens often is that there's one person who takes over the meeting, who's like, you know, is really uh, putting themselves in like uh, their, their positionality might be higher. So then they just take over the whole meeting. So we really force these teams to really stretch their muscle of working together while uh, practicing protocols that gave voice to everybody, not just the people who are in positions of power or who are, you know, the directors or the, you know, whatever, that it's like you listen to everybody and we ask them to bring everybody. Like you don't just bring like the C-suite, bring me like who's working with students because, you know, we want to hear what they have to say because they probably have the direct connection with the student and we ask them to bring students. And so each team brought students to be part of the conversations and to be part of this, uh, this course. And so I do want to say that we're going to have another, um, we're, 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 uh, we might open registration again. We just open registration for the fall course, but we definitely have another one coming um, in April uh, that will be the same for the uh, HSI teams who want to do this really intentional work and, and we'll have those dates. But really, we're thinking we're going to be uh, provide, uh, offering this course multiple times during the year so that HSIs have an opportunity to figure out what, which location is closest to them and, uh, you know, what dates work best for them. And so, so yeah, that's the uh, Moving Towards Serving course. And we have one more that I'll just mention real fast that's in development, but will be starting this year is because of all of the things that we hear from our alumni and the HSIs that have worked, partnered with us over these years is like, what's they always are like, what's next? What's next can we do with you? But we're now trying to do our own Escala-like stuff. We want to develop the capacity. So capacity is a huge word that we hear weekly in our meetings with clients and just emails that come through is like, we want to develop capacity and we know where that's coming from. You know, a lot of it is around the grant questions like, okay, how are you going to institutionalize your efforts? And I think this is a big sticking point right now from our experience that 
HSIs are still struggling with, right? Is institutionalization, capacity building. Like what is, what, what is that? Like, how do you actually do that? Everybody wants to, but, but how, right? The money's drying up. So we've developed, um, and this is where Dr. Jimenez has just been so helpful in her expertise and facilitation. You can tell just probably by listening to her awesome voice that she has a lot of power in the way that she speaks. And um, I, so we have been co-developing and we'll probably be pulling up in other amazing folks like uh, Dr. Gonzalez, Elizabeth Gonzalez, who worked on the Moving Towards Serving course with us this year. Dr. Vargas, um, people who also have similar power with communication and how to facilitate conversations in their own HSIs. So in addition to this team's course, in addition to the faculty courses, it's like maybe you are a, a leader or you see yourself as a leader in your HSI and you want to start developing educational programs to get people to change, right? Or to get people to listen to you. Maybe you're, you know, you're done with all the outside experts and you're ready to like dig into the work yourself and you want to lead it, but we know we have a lot of things about, we know what works, right? Like we know how to develop a good program. We know how to develop reflective spaces. We also have facilitated tons of difficult conversations. We know how to keep people from taking left turns. So we've developed a year long residency with us that will be opening this fall and people will be able to spend a year with us meeting monthly with some other um, folks who are in similar positions, maybe you're a professional development person, maybe you're an instructional designer, maybe you're just a leader in some other way and you want to start developing your own curriculum around your HSI to move it towards serving and we'll help you. So we're going to have monthly meetings, um, we'll be able to coach you as you develop your own PD and also give you some feedback and then teach you everything we know about facilitating conversations, particularly in HSIs, which are different than conversations in other higher ed spaces. HSIs are all about culture, change, identity, really difficult topics, equity, racism, whiteness, white decentering, all the things that Dr. Jimenez like studied in her dissertation. I mean, stuff comes up that's difficult for, and I think sometimes people are like, I don't know if I can handle it. Cause I know that's what I thought. When I first started the work, I was like, I don't know if I'm ready for this. I'm a STEM professional. What the hell am I doing here? And so I just learned on the job and I've made every mistake you can in facilitation. So I share all those with folks who are training with us that look, you know, you, you might say the wrong thing, but you can recover. You know, you can also apologize. And Dr. Jimenez has stopped me just name what's happening. So there's lots of tricks that I'm really excited that we're finally in a space where we can, and I wouldn't say they're tricks, but it's like ways to protect yourself. So let me rephrase that. It's like you as a facilitator are putting yourself out there. You um, are under attack many times when you speak up at a meeting. How do you do that and get your message across? What's the timing of that? What are the words you use? And how do you protect yourself emotionally from the resistance? Because it's exhausting. And we know better than anyone how exhausting that work is. So we want to help. And so that's our way of trying to put something out there where we can gather folks that are in the same space we are. Absolutely. I love it. Thank you for that. It helped me a lot to even think about, um, you know, your work and how uh, some of the institutions I work with, it's almost like they can work with me and then work with y'all like, uh, hello, we can all work with each other. Right. Because y'all do really deep 
learning, right? A lot of times people bring me in and they're like, they throw me in a room. They're like, go tell everybody about themselves. <laughs> go tell them they're racist, right? Whatever. Cause you do that well. And then I leave, you know, I was like, I'll go home. I'm not necessarily doing these deep analysis and deep dives into, you know, surveyness, it takes a long time. You can't just have a one-time speaker or a one-time workshop or even just read a book, right? It's like this, this a lot of work. And that's what I love about the work that Escala is doing is y'all are like, this is a process, um, but also you got to be ready. Y'all both made reference to that. Like if you're not ready, you're not ready, right? So everybody isn't ready to jump into this, this surveyness work. Um, and I think that's the great thing about your, your program yet is y'all are able to spend some, a lot of important time with folks, but, but when they're ready, <laughs> you gotta be ready to do this kind of work and roll up your sleeves and talk about whiteness and talk about your identity and how it comes into the classroom. That's, that's deep. That's some deep, deep stuff. So thank you all for, um, even just helping me to better understand, um, the suite that y'all are offering. And that continues to grow even from when I first uh, learned about the Scala. So on your website, it says that Ascala offers a unique approach to professional development. So you just gave us like the sort of like, this is what we do. So what makes it unique? Why would somebody want to spend time with you versus any other of the opportunities? I would say that one way that we're unique, you've already said it, that we're focused on HSIs, but I would also say we, we try as much as we can. We're never perfect, but we try to be Latinx centered. We're student Latinx centered. And that has come, that's a long road to become there, right? You know, like the all students, the, oh, we're lifting all boats and, oh, everybody needs great teaching. There's been a lot of struggle to be in a place where I say that without apology that, and we say that now I say that to every new client, anybody who calls us, is your faculty ready to talk about their Latinx students and not all students. And if they're like hemming and hawing with me, I'm like, you're like, you just said, you're not ready. You're not ready for this because we're not going to talk about all students. And if someone does, they kind of get called on it. Well, why don't you want to study your Latinx students? What's going on there? Um, so that's, that's, I think, one unique approach is, is that we do that in all of our programs. We take that as the center point for why we're doing the work and who we're doing it for. And that is not to say that other students aren't important, but I don't make any apologies anymore that Escala programming is going to be centered on you need to study your Latinx students' achievement, success, self-worth, how you, what assumptions you make, your cultural competency around Latinx culture and how complex it is, et cetera. So that's, that's the first part of our unique approach. The other, I think, really unique thing about um, our uh, approach is that we really provide space to actually uh, put it into practice. And, and I think that if you, you know, just think of PD in general, usually you go to a training, you go to like a one day or you bring in a speaker, like you were saying, Gina, and then it's done. Right. And, and I think that Estella actually creates the space or the container for you to be able to, uh, you know, learn the strategy, implement the strategy. What did you learn? And did it work? Did it not work? You know, there's a lot of tools that Escala uses. Um, to be able to create, like, you're really, like, not only telling faculty, like, you are the expert in your field, and, um, but just, like, being able to say, like, here are some tools that you might want to try or not try, but here's what we know works with Latinx students based on the scholarship, and here's how, here's what it looks like in practice, 
and, and now go pick from this, you know, buffet of strategies and, and now go implement it. And then let's talk about what happened, kind of like the origins, right? It's like, now you're going to reflect. Uh, Escala is very big on reflection on like, what happened? What did you do? What could you do different? What did your students say? Student voice is so important. And I think that the other thing is that we model what to do when, while we're teaching you the strategies, right? So we not only, uh, you know, teach about what we're, we're saying, but we're also modeling like the equitable protocols and, and making space for all voice, for all the voices in the room or um, making sure that not one person is taking up all the space. You know, we model uh, a lot of the practices that we use. And I think that that's what's very unique. That's what we hear from clients is like, wow, like Escala really gave me the tools that I needed to be able to create space for everybody to feel like they were a part of the conversation. Or, you know, there's always one, some things that they take around the protocols that we use. Um, so those are the other few things. I don't know, Dr. Salazar, if you wanted to add anything more. No, I think that's that's really it. And I'll I'll just say like up front too that uh to be honest, it's very unsexy work. <laughs> it, it's not like flash, like we're gonna give you like the five things and everything's gonna be awesome. It's very messy. Um, it can feel very unsatisfying. So what we've I think we've sort of mastered with the work that we've been honing and honing and honing into our courses is what's the actual question you need to ask? Like I may have had 10 questions in the past and it's like whittled down to like two core questions that you're going to go ask yourself and your students and come back. So I feel like it's a very efficient use of folks time who are just like, I'm struggling or I'm suspicious that I don't really, I'm not really doing what I need to do. They're awesome teachers. Most of the people that come to us are just already really on the path and are just either looking for validation for their strategies. And a lot of what they tell us is that you gave me permission to do this more intentionally. And you gave me the reasons that I can argue that our colleagues should be doing this more. So we're building leaders. So I think that's our last thing of our unique approach is that we're really intentionally through driving those folks that come to us willingly into leadership roles with their peers. And, you know, mm -hmm. so that leads me to like our peer like the last thing I just want to mention is that like with all of these alumni and people who are just like, okay, what's next? What's next? We want to stay with you. We finished the course. Now what? We've taken all your courses. Now what? So what they do next is to re-engage with us as peer coaches with current participants. And that's been an amazing process that came about because Wilma Doolin at Yakima suggested it. And I was like, oh, you're right. I'm totally sick of coaching. Please help me out. <laughs> so we created a mm. peer coaching program. And thank goodness, because that's like where most of our subcontractors come from. I mentioned there's like 100 people a year. Most of those are peer coaches. They receive training and then they come back after being alumni, get more training with us to be coaches and help us with our program. Like maybe they're a lead in a Zoom room or maybe they're developing PD at their own site or, or maybe they're coaching within one of our formal programs. So we have like a lot of cycling back where I feel like those people get more confident about taking leadership roles, like their deans now, their DEIs, they switch colleges because they stick of where they were and get a better position. So a lot of those folks, you know, they publish or they, um, 
the confidence that I see people get from having that reflective process and realizing, hey, I was on the right track, but I'm going to get even more kick-ass at this strategy. So that's really like where I feel like we've done our work is helping people into the messy process of self-examination and not telling them exactly what they need to do because they're super smart. They don't need to be told what to do. They need to be told how to think about what they're doing and a little bit more about how to be intentional with Latinx folks based on literature. And it's hard for faculty to go and read all the books and read all the articles. So we try to condense them into, this is what most of them are saying. So if you aren't doing this strategy, y'all need to like do it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, come on, what are you waiting for? And that's often what speaks to faculty is to know this is supported by research. It's not just my own classroom. Everybody wants, you know, everybody's doing this and writing about it. So we're kind of just trying to help them into the ease of that messy, let's push a little bit further and become experts at teaching our Latinx students. Absolutely. I love it. Love the work that y'all are doing. So one thing that's become very clear is you're like, we are unapologetically focused on Latinx students, right? Like we show up as ourselves, as you, everybody you've named on your team so far, Latinas, right? Predominantly Latinas um, showing up and modeling what this looks like and doing this work, right? Because you're really committed to it. The one thing I think a lot about is like, um, and individual organizations also have identities, right? So I want to talk a little bit about that because I think a lot about is there differences between doing this work, particularly as a faculty member um, at a two-year HSI versus a four-year HSI or is servingness the same at all institutions? Because I want people to think about identities at multiple levels, right? And that one I think is an important one, but I don't know. What are y'all thoughts? Because you work with both two-year and four-year. Yeah, that's a really, I think that's such a complex question. And I feel like my understanding of it is evolving. But and so I'm just going to speak from the perspective of taking the majority of client calls and over the years, seeing what two and four years different questions they ask, and then how they how they use our program. So I would have said five years ago, something very different than I'll say now, because the five years ago, our majority of our clients were two years. So just as HSIs shift in their own identity demographics between two and four year, our balance of clients is now between two and four years. And we have a lot more four years that we've worked with. So I'll say, so I'll say I have more experience now, you know, but, you know, going to four years myself, I know that faculty under a lot of pressure for different reasons that two years are. And so in the beginning, two-year clients were who we had because they were willing to talk about teaching. They were willing to send people to professional on teaching. And now I see that four years are really digging deep because they're like, we're losing students. We're not graduating. Um, maybe TMP might be shifting around student, prof- you know, student evaluation. So I see that four years are turning a corner. That's just my impression from where I sit that there's definitely more interest in what are we doing with our classroom practices as impacting numbers that we have to pay attention to or my TNP. So I think that's the four-year discussion is like, how can we measure that we're having impact in the classroom? So we get a lot more conversations with our four years around measurement, um, changing the way students are graduating, you know, things that are like the iPad stuff is really where four years want to have those discussions. And then in two years, it's there, um, I would say as a group, 
much more interested in the unique aspects of their HSI. Where are we located? Uh, we're serving our communities that are, are surrounding us. So understanding the, the students that they serve is much more of the discussion with two years that we have, which is like, well, is your program going to work for us? Because look at where we're located and we see that you're not, you know, da 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 da. Can we like, you know, make sure this is going to work for our students, which I think is a smart question to ask too. It's like, not every program is going to be perfect for everybody. So, but a lot of them are really, really interested in their their location, you know, and how that location serves them and, and whether that's urban or rural or suburban or what part of the country it's in. So Dr. Jimenez, do you want to add to that? I know you know you know a lot about two years. Yeah, I think that the that for me, you know, I have experience working in two-year colleges and have experience working with four years through Escala. And I think that the part that I don't think is different is, is the part about just like the practices that we use for our Latinx students, right? It's still like being, just being for our students and, and, under, and like what the research tells us is they just need one person to connect with. And that's uh, the best indicator of whether or not they're going to be successful. And so we talk a lot about that in our courses is that, can you be that person? We know you can. How can we help you do that? And at that point, it doesn't matter if you're a two-year or four-year, is do you understand that and how do you make that happen for the students that you're serving? And so so I, I think that Dr. Salazar like talked about all the differences, but I think that there's a lot of also similarities because if you're gonna serve your Latinx students, you know, it, it's gonna be very much uh, a lot of the time the same strategies, right? About what's important to, you know, like the, are you creating space for like, you know, community building, because that's really important. And, um, and so a lot of those strategies are going to be the same, regardless if, if you're in a two year or four year. Awesome. Thank you for that. And you're right. Yeah, there are some just some sort of core basic, what the kind of work y'all are doing, right, is like, work faculty working directly with Latinx students, right? There are some core basic, like, connections research shows is like major right versus if I asked y'all to tell me you know how are we going to measure serving nets at a two-year versus four-year that might look different right like transfer rates might be more relevant at a two-year than like you know 150 percent graduation rate I don't know right um, but I think it's something we have to keep thinking about and as y'all think as you're working with two-year versus four-year something to keep thinking about right that like um, it's, there are there are some differences with some things and maybe not others this is something I think about a lot, y'all. So I don't really have an answer. I just I just like to hear from other thought partners who are who are doing similar work, right? And we're all trying to figure this out all at the same time. So something I'd love to hear about is what are the challenges? I always want to know challenges. I want to know successes. I want to know what y'all do well, but I also want to know what are challenges when you're when you're working with faculty and they're trying to implement the strategies y'all are doing, they're trying to implement servingness. That's not easy. It's not easy to transform entire. Uh, you know, structures and particularly your teaching structures. So what are some of the challenges y'all have seen um, faculty face? That's such a good question. So I think it's probably for me, and I would love to hear Dr. Jimenez answer this after I do, but I'll probably, uh, we sometimes think very much alike, sometimes not. So I want to hear, but I, I feel very much like the individual courses, the major challenge folks have is operating in a white centered HSI. They 
get transformed through their messy self-reflective process into folks who are ready to undismantle a lot of the faculty practices and assumptions and the industrial complex of, you know, having too many courses with too many students and not getting to know them. There's just a lot of stuff that they learn that they're like, why the hell are we doing it this way? And that's a tough thing to go back to after being in a course where they hear some of these ideas that are like, is this even possible? And I'm just one person. So I think sometimes their challenges are feeling depressed at going back into a system. They don't feel like they can change and having to go back and kind of feel pressured also by being young faculty members and not having tenure and what their peers might think of them. So, I mean, I would just give a quick example that we do an equity analysis where faculty look at their own grades and how Latinx students have been doing over time in a course they teach compared to all students or compared to other subgroups of students. They do it all sorts of which ways. And that is a very sobering thing for many faculty to do because after they do that, they go, why isn't everybody doing this? You know, like I learned a lot about myself. This is my reckoning, right? If I think I'm an awesome teacher and everyone's having a super amount of fun in my class and I'm connecting with my students, but they're all getting C's, D's and F's and withdrawing, then what, what am I doing? Right? Like, then my assessment practices don't match what I think is happening. So there's a lot of hunches we make as faculty. And until you actually sit down and look at course grades, maybe you don't believe course grades are everything, but guess what? That's the point of the realm, right? So if we're handing out predominantly C's, D's, and F's and withdraws and I's for our Latinx students, you don't have anyone to blame but yourself and the grading complex. I mean, we can have a whole conversation about that, but I think that's one of the things that when people have those kinds of ahas or, you know, these, these moments where people cry sometimes when they see what happens, right? Because this is, like I said, it's personal and going back into an institution where they're not encouraged to change. And they're now talking about, well, I need to find ways to help my Latinx students learn more. I need to find assessment strategies that really assess what they know so that they're not getting C's because they didn't turn in homework or some other dumb reason. So Having those epiphanies and going back into a system where those epiphanies are not honored or validated and being a young faculty member, which many of our our new faculty that are coming to our programs are, is really depressing. So I would say that's like one of the major challenges. And that's why we started this team's course, because we know it's not just faculty that are going to change this college. It's got to be everybody, everybody's work. And faculty need to stop shaming each other around giving all A's and B's. Because that doesn't mean that you're easy. That means you know what you're doing. But I have had faculty say, well, I got really great results when I was in Escala. I got my Latinx students. I closed equity gaps. So many more of them are passing the class and getting A's and B's, in fact. And I can't share that with my colleagues because they're going to think that I'm just easy. And they're going to be on my tenure committee. So I can't even talk about what I learned. So that to me is heartbreaking. Like, what are we even doing if we don't want our Latinx students to do better? So that's the conversation I want to have with HSIs is like, what are we even doing? How, how, 
how much do we really want to close these equity gaps? What's what's close enough? You know, like why would you shame anybody for getting giving A's and B's when they earned it? And and it worked, right? So that's like my quick example of what I think challenges are for individual faculty. Um, Manivel, you this was your dissertation, so I know you got <laughs> things to say. Well, I mean, I feel like I, I can just I'll just say one real quick thing that I think that a major challenge can sometimes be the leadership of the college. Um, and and I yeah, this was my dissertation on strategic planning is that we're not you know, like this should be, you know, what you just described, Dr. Salazar, should be on the strategic plan. Like, how are we going to, um, you know, what are the strategies? Here's like a real life example or strategy that you can use to begin to close your equity gaps around Latinx students. But we're still not creating a culture that says it's okay. Like, the more we know, the better, like, at least we know where we are. And having this this uh, trying to create this culture where it's okay to share that we have gaps and and how do we begin to address them? And I think that that starts with leadership and we often get stuck in all of these different conversations around like, oh, but shouldn't we be talking about all students, you know, or or I don't know if we can do that. You know, what's, what's interesting is if you go to K-12, all of the faculty, all of the teachers in K-12 have to you know, report their grades and, and how students are doing to the state. You know, we don't do that in higher ed. And it's such a like, oh, don't say that there's gaps when it's like, how are we ever going to begin to address uh, closing them if we're so worried about protecting, you know, what we're going to find? And and I think that that's why, you know, I talked earlier in, in my strategic planning session with Dr. Garcia about how um, you know, leadership really matters. And so we get stuck there and that's a challenge. If, if they're not, if, if leaders of HSIs are not having, making space for those conversations or have the ability to really understand the, um, the, the racialized experience of your Latinx students or like the historical trauma that they've experienced in K-12 and for everyone to understand that, not just faculty, but your staff, like everyone should understand like the journey of your Latinx students into your higher ed. And if you're not making space for that and not making it a priority, then, it, you know, then what are you doing? Like, like, and I said, you know, in the last, you know, session is that you can't like you, you might be great, but maybe not at an HSI, like you'd be great at a different college, but not at an HSI if you're not willing to do those things. And be, and that's a challenge. Absolutely. If y'all haven't listened to Dr. Jimenez's um, episode yet, please feel free to listen to it. But I think what you were saying in that in your episode um, was about leadership matters. And then this one, y'all have really honed in on faculty matter, right? Faculty absolutely matter, but that it, it's not faculty the way we've always thought about faculty. It's faculty need to think differently. Faculty need to, need to examine their own ways of being, their own identities, their own practices, their own classroom culture, their own data. <laughs> it's like if you're given all D's and F's, that does not mean you're a good teacher. But unfortunately, in a STEM culture, right, that sometimes is like the idea, particularly in STEM culture, right? Like, oh, yeah, no, it's fine. It's I mean, I did a great job. I have this curve, right? It's a beautiful curve um, versus I want every single one of my students to get an A or when you all step in the room, everyone's getting an A. 
because we gonna make sure you get an A, right? Like, what if that was faculty approach, right? Like, you're all getting an A. There's 150 of you, and everyone's getting an A, right? And we gonna guarantee it, right? Together as a professor, as a student. Um, so thank you all. Thank you all for for doing this work and really working um, on one of many dimensions of servingness. Faculty are just one of many dimensions, right? And we know that. Um, so final question: Everybody has. Nobody gets out of this podcast without answering it. Um, and it could go any which direction, but it, people show up because they want to know what's happening with HSIs. So how y'all how y'all respond to that? Get pasa HSIs. Well, I'll start by seeing that despite how I might have sounded at certain times in this interview, that I love this work with HSIs. You know, I see challenges. I'm, you know, sometimes feel exhausted by the same questions coming up where I feel like people want to just know some quick answers. So I think what, how I'd answer that is that we need to embrace the mess. Like HSIs are a beautiful place to dig in and examine how did we get here? Why are we doing what we're doing? How do we want to be different? And I would say that's a strength that we have, it is not bad that we're mess, like a little bit of a mess inside because from the mess is where you get clarity. And that's, I guess I'm just speaking from somebody who just loves process and loves education and loves talking like together collectively. So I think I wouldn't want to be anywhere else except in HSI work because there are so many interesting facets to HSI work that it never, it never ends, right? Like you always find something new to write about every single year. You're like on a different path around it. And I think that's, you may, you, maybe you feel the same way around it. I just like, it's so fascinating. It never stops. And I think that means we're never done. We're never going to be done. It's okay. And if we accept that we can stay in that mess, but if everybody tries to just hurry out of it, and go, oh, we're just going to do this. We're going to like read Gina's book and we're all done, you know, like, and I, I just think the mess, like you better read Gina's books. Like you better read her articles. That is super part of it. But how are you going to keep it messy enough that you're going to do something differently instead of just wash over it with, we did a few things. It's not about what you do it's how you do it. Always. It's how we're going to do this work together. And how are we going to keep students at the center instead of ourselves and the old ways? So that's what I think we all need to do. Um, I think for me, I'm going to take an opportunity to really speak to like the practitioners of HSIs who are like on the ground doing the work. Ah, I'm going to get emotional because I know it's hard and exhausting, but stay in it. It's going to get better. And, um, and find your voice, find it because you have really great things to share and say. And I know that um, if they just make room for you, it will definitely impact the institution and really serve the students that I know you love and care for. So shout out to you. I hear you and I see you and just keep at it. Thank you both. That was beautiful. I loved it. I love hearing the answer, the responses to that, because there, there's a lot 
going on, you know, in HSI. There really is. It's 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 very complex, and y'all have really just responded to the call. And 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 I love the idea of being in in the mess. Um, and I I see the hard work being done as well, uh, Maribel. I I I feel you. Same exact same exact sentiment of like people are actually doing really hard work. Um, and I see you as well. And I think we all do, right? With this session, Escala sees you, we see you, um, and keep doing it. Keep pressing, stay in that mess and keep fighting. Stay in la lucha. Thank you very much for being with me today. I appreciate you both. Thank you for this wonderful opportunity. I've said a lot of things that weigh on my conscience and this was just a nice, nice platform for me to speak honestly. Um, and then I just appreciate everything you're doing for HSIs and for us as well. So thank you. Thank you, Gina. You're welcome. Mwah.